Well, good evening, brothers and sisters and young people and friends. The um, subject we have in front of us this evening is certainly one that is um, one that I, w I guess you could say in, in many ways um, is, is fairly controversial. Um, it certainly has been in this last little while, um, as we've seen the events that have taken place over uh, the last probably uh, six months or so, um, but probably in the last couple of years. And so what we'd like to talk about tonight is, is really what the Bible has to say about that. That's going to be the basis of our discussion. There's lots of political parties with lots of different ideas and views. Our goal is going to be to really focus in on what the Bible has to say. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's letter to Timothy, verse 15, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. And that is through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So the scriptures hold the key to salvation. And it's God putting his thoughts into the minds of men who recorded them. And this is where we can get our reproof, our correction, our instruction. And the reality is we don't need anything else. Now, when it comes to subjects like this or other ones, the motto of the scriptures, as is recorded in Isaiah 8 and verse 8, actually it's verse 20, is to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So our goal this evening is not to put forward our opinion, and as Bible believers, it has to be to the Bible that we go for our authority. Uh, we hold it above all public opinion, all likes or dislikes, above the philosophies of man, no matter what their political view, and we hold it above all policies of governments and, of course, um, our own opinions. And so Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word, to be instant, in season, out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, because he tells them the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and their ears shall be turned from the truth and shall be turned to fables. So we hope this evening to speak the truth in a time when the world cannot endure sound doctrine. It has turned its ears to fables, and so the things that we might talk about might not be popular with the world around us, but that's okay because we are more interested in what God has to say. So in Colossians chapter 2, we are given warnings about man's theories on this subject and others. We're told, beware lest any man spoil you, verse 8, through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So as Bible believers, some would call Christians, the, the point is that we cannot allow our, our, our thinking to be framed by the rudiments of the world, the things of the world, but rather um, we need to make sure that they are framed by the word of God. So Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 19 that the wisdom of this world anyway is foolishness with God. It is written, he takes the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. So we're not here to glory in men. We are to find out what God is going to speak to us on this subject. And Isaiah 55 and verses 7 to 9 points out to us a, a, a real solid fact when it comes to this. And that is that God's ways of looking at things are completely different than men's. He says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And he tells us, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so that's one of the seminary points that we want to sort of um, drive in into our minds when we start to look at this, is that God's thinking is completely different than man's, and the world's philosophies are going to be poles apart from what God has to say. So 
We want to let the truth speak, and as Romans 3 verse 4, Paul tells us, let God be true and every man a liar. So what we say may go against the grain of society, might be against what we're taught at school or at work or what the politicians say, but if we choose to be the servants of Christ, we have to listen to what God has to say and not what man has to say. Now, in the world around us, there is this notion of a brotherhood of man. And that is what uh, popular philosophy would really kind of pick up on. Popular going all the way back to Aristotle. Um, the idea that man is to live as he likes. Um, for, they, that, for that, they say, is the function of liberty in as much as to live not as one likes is the life of man that is a slave. This is the second principle of democracy. And from it has, it has come the claim not to be governed or preferably not by anybody or failing that to govern and be governed in turns, this is the way in which the second principle contributes to the egalitarian liberty. So that's Aristotle um, going back uh, a year or two or 2384 uh, years or thereabouts, um, sometime in his lifetime. But that has been popularized in the world around us with this idea of man living as he likes and basically not being governed and, and no rules and and songs like this one here this is uh, John Lennon uh, back when he wrote imagine and he says imagine all the people living for today and that's kind of a lot of what the world would like to do um, there's no countries it's not hard to do he says nothing to kill or die for no religion to imagine all the people living life in peace so if we take away countries and religion everybody's going to live in peace he says imagine no possessions I wonder if you can no need for greed or hunger a brotherhood of man and imagine all the people sharing all the world and he says you may say that i'm a dreamer but i'm not the only one and i hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one well john um that has already been tried and back in the days of the judges in judges chapter 21 verse 25 we read at that time that in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes, and it didn't go so well. Or as Frank Sinatra would put it, I did it my way. And uh, he certainly did do it his way, and um, that didn't exactly get him very far when it comes to eternal life. Now, the problem with man's thinking on this is that they don't understand uh, a very fundamental fact about human nature. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So God basically says, look, the heart of man is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. It's not basically good. And most of man's philosophies are based on this notion that man is basically good. Well, Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and we turn now to the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, and he has a similar sentiment when he says in, in Mark chapter 7, verse 21, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. So that's the, the root cause of problems in society today, is that man is basically evil in his nature, and from within come all of the problems the world sees around us. And commenting on this, um, the Lord or Jeremiah says, I, Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. And of course, that is agreed to throughout the Bible. Um, Proverbs 21 verse 2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. So what he comes up with, he thinks is a brilliant idea, but the Lord ponders the hearts. And Proverbs 12 verse 15, the way of a foolish of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth to counsel is wise. And so that's the problem that we're dealing with. And it's a systemic problem. In fact, the Apostle John in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, clearly tells us, we know that we are of God, he says, and that the whole world lies in wickedness. 
So this is the problem, and that's been the way since the very beginning of time. The whole world lies in wickedness. Now, when we look at the world around us and, and we see way, the way things are, there's a couple of points that we really need to pick up from the Bible. And the first is that mankind was actually divided by God. You see, there was a time when the world was one, and it's back in Genesis chapter 11. We read in Genesis 11, the whole earth was of one language and one speech. And they said to one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad on the face of the whole earth. So man was one at this point in time. And God looked at this and we read Yahweh said, behold, the people is one and they have all one language and this they begin to do. Now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth and they left off building this great city uh, that they had decided to build, which we find out later on is called Babylon. So God divided man so that he wouldn't be able to, uh, I guess you could say, complete the desires of his heart. Now, it's, again, a biblical fact that God created the races. In fact, Genesis chapter 10, the, the, the chapter just before the one we've read, is the record of once the flood had happened and once man was divided and their tongues were set out, it's the record, basically, of how God divided the nations out. So if you just look at Genesis chapter 10 and, and just a couple of passages, we have in Genesis 10 verse 5, by these were the isles of the Gentiles, or the descendants of Japheth divided into their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families in their nations, right? So that's the descendants of Japheth. And then we have the sons of Ham, their families, their tongues, their countries, their nations in verse 20. And then we have the division of the sons of Shem or the Shemitic people, Semitic peoples, after their families, their tongues, their lands, their nations, right? So God divided the nations of the world by their countries, by their families, and by their tongues. And in fact, this agrees with the words of Acts. In Acts chapter 17 and at verse 24, we read that God that made the world and all the things therein, he has given to all life and breath and all things, and have made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So not only has God created man on the earth out of one blood, so they're all made of the same stuff, nobody's better than anybody else, so to speak, but he has appointed the times and bounds of their habitations. Now, when we consider this, um, the problem is, of course, that man even though he's divided into nations now, still has that same heart. And so what we find in the, the history of the world, and certainly as we read through the history of the Bible here, is that there are nations rising against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms, as the Lord prophesied in Luke 21 and verse 10. So this is, is kind of what's been going on since the beginning of time. But in the face of all of that, God had a plan and a purpose, and he separated out one family specifically to bring about his purpose, and that's the family of Abraham. Now, come, if you would, back to Genesis and chapter 12, because there's many nations, many tongues, uh, many families of the earth, but in Genesis chapter 12, he separates one family, and this, of course, is the family of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, Yahweh had said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, it's an entirely other subject, but what God does is he takes Abraham, he, he sends him into Egypt, and they're in Egypt for a period of time, and his, his descendants grow to become the children of Israel, or the children of Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel. 
And we're told there in Exodus 19 and verse 6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are words which thou shalt speak to the children of Israel. So they were to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. So they were separate, set apart. And not only that, but God would cast out other nations before them and enlarge their borders, bringing into fact into, into pass the words that he had spoken to Abraham to give them the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Now, come over a few pages into Deuteronomy, where we find that this is actually enacted. And we have a similar statement here about God's division of the nations in Deuteronomy 32 and at verse 8. When the Most High divided the nations, their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So God divides out the nations, he separates the sons of Adam, and he's made this place for the children of Israel. And he says in verse 9, Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in the desert land, in thy waste howling wilderness. He led him, he instructed him, and kept him as the apple of his eye. And of course, what God would do is bring the people of Israel into the land. Uh, the land that we know today as the land of Israel was called Palestine, at one point called Canaan. Um, but in Deuteronomy 9, uh, just back a few pages there, what we find there is that God also spoke to the children of Israel and basically said, listen, um, this isn't because you're a really great people. In fact, this is what he says in verse 4. He says, speak not in thine heart after that Yahweh thy God hath cast thee out from before, uh, cast them out, that's the other nations from before thee, saying, for my righteousness Yahweh hath brought me into possess this land. He says, that's not the issue. He says, it's for the wickedness of these nations Yahweh doth drive them out from before thee, not for thy righteousness uh, or for the uprightness of thine heart that thou shalt go in and possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations, Yahweh thy God doth drive them out before thee. So that's the, the issue. It's not about uh, Israel's righteousness. It's because of the wickedness of the people and that he may perform the word which he spake to, or which Yahweh swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So that's the reason why God has done this, because he's made a promise to, to Abraham. So he's going to bring the children of Israel, regardless of their circumstances, um, into the land, and he's going to drive out the nations in the land because of their wickedness. And to this, basically, we have the words of Acts 15. Simon, or Simeon, Simon Peter, um, hath declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Now, why have we talked about all of that when we have a class regarding um, protests? Well, the point is this, is that Christians have been separated to join the family of Abraham. They have become strangers and pilgrims. In fact, if you come over to Hebrews chapter 11, let's just see what it says about Abraham here um, in Hebrews chapter 11. And this is his relation to the world around him in the time that he lived. So Hebrews chapter 11 at verse 13 all these, and that's the people he's been describing in the previous 12 verses, including um, Noah and Abraham and Isaac and, and so on. Um, he said, all these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For that they say that they, sorry, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful, or as the ESV puts it, if they'd been thinking about the country from whence they came out, they might have had an opportunity to have returned to it. So, but they, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims. They were looking for something in the future. So their focus was not on the here and now, and neither should ours be. So if we come over to Galatians 
chapter 3, Christians, when they are baptized, and if they're not baptized, well, then they're not really Christians, because that's how one becomes a Christian, truly, according to the biblical definition. In Galatians chapter 3 and at verse 26, we read that you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, bond or free, whether you're a slave or not, male or female, we all become one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise that we read about. So we belong to this people that have been separated from the world, and we are going to be heirs of that same promise. And, and it doesn't matter whether we're a Greek or a Jew, whether we're a barbarian or a Scythian, as it says elsewhere. Um, it doesn't matter what our background is. It's We're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, without that, you can't have people that become one because God has divided the nations by language, um, by their, their families, and so on and so forth. Now, I'd like you to come over to, from Galatians, the next chapter over, or the next book over, is Ephesians. And in chapter 2, in verse 12, Paul describes our former state. He says, look, at that time, this is before they'd become baptized, he says, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God, in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So we were at one point aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. But now we've been made nigh. And as we keep reading down in verse 19, now therefore you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So we can see here that we've given up whatever citizenship we had when we were strangers and foreigners, we were citizens of another country, and we've become fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. And Christ is the foundation of that house. And so when we look at the, the change that's taking place here, um, come over to First of Peter chapter 2. He says here in verse 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So think back to God's purpose in the beginning. He separates all the nation, divides them into tongues, and then he separates one nation for himself, a holy nation. And then he says, look, you know, for the Gentiles, he says, you can join my holy nation and become a purchased people, a peculiar people to show forth the virtues or the praises, the characteristics of the one who's called you out of darkness. So we become the family of God and show forth the characteristics of God. Now, one interesting fact here is that Christians are actually not free men, so to speak. They are slaves. They are slaves who have been purchased from one slave owner to another. The slave owner they've been purchased from is sin and death, and they've been purchased to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just a couple of verses to think about on this. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. And in 1 Peter 1, verse 19, we're told that that price is the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so that's what the Christian's peoples are supposed to be. They're not their own. They're not there to just do whatever they want to do. They've been purchased, been separated by God out of the nations like the, the state or the people of Israel were. And they have been brought into a state now where they are in covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, purchased by his blood. And that's what we read in Revelation 5. Thou wast slain and hast, redeem, uh, and hast redeemed us to God, 
uh, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So that's what God has done. But you see, that means that we have been made out of all nations, tongues and peoples that God separated at the beginning into one people, but we are to do his will. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, if you just come to John chapter 15, he points out for us here that this is the situation. In John 15 verse 14, you're my friends, he says, if you do whatsoever I command you. So we have been purchased. We're not our own, but we are to do what the Lord commands us. And so he goes on to say in Matthew 7, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So when we then look at this and consider the situation uh, that we are in today as Bible believers, we have the word of God, it is our authority. We've been separated out from the nations to become part of his holy nation. And so when it comes to our relation to the state, it has to be framed in this way. And so I'd like you to turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, because this is what God uh, calls upon us to be and to do. So he tells us, and this is through the Apostle Paul, and Paul tells us, of course, that the things he writes to us are his, the commandments of the Lord. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, we read this. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship or partnership hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord or accord or, again, like an agreement, has Christ with Belial or the wicked? Or what part or portion has he that believes with the infidel, the unbeliever? And so he says in verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So, that's the, the principle that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers in partnership or communion or fellowship or accord with them because we're told to come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. So what about then this whole idea of protest? We think of the world around us and the political protests that have been going on all over the place. How are we to behave in light of such things? We're told to come out from amongst the world and be separate and touch not the unclean thing, not to have an agreement, not to have fellowship, not to be partakers with the world in the things that it does. But we're also giving a couple of other instructions. So come over to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 and at verse 1, we read there, let every soul be subject to the higher powers. For there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Well, that's an interesting statement, that every soul should be subject to the higher powers, because God's the one who's ordained them. He's the one who has put them in place. Now, like them or not, like their policies or not, um, he's the one who's put them in place, because as we read in Daniel 4.17, the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. So come over, keep a finger in Romans, because it's going to come right back here, but just come over to Second Peter for a moment. Or oh, sorry, First of Peter. First of Peter chapter 2. First of Peter chapter 2, and we have this idea laid out here as well. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it's to the king as supreme or to the governors, as to them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And he says, you know, you're free, but use not your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness or as the ESV puts it, a pretext for evil but we are to be the servants of God. So there's the key. We are to submit ourselves 
not just because, you know, well, I guess we should do that, but it's for the Lord's sake. And it's to every level of government, the top level, whether it's the king or in our case, the prime minister or maybe the president, if we're from the U.S., as supreme or to the governors, whether that's the provincial premiers, their ministers or the the civil or municipal governments that are over us, all levels of government, we are supposed to submit ourselves to them. Now, you could say, well, what about when their laws contradict the laws of God? And of course, we, we do find occasion of this in Acts chapter 5. And again, keep your finger in Romans. You can let go of Peter. But Acts chapter 5, verse 28, the Pharisees and the, the rulers of Israel at the time, they bring the disciples, the apostles, Peter and John, and they say, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in his name? And behold, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and tend to bring this man's blood on us. And Peter said, Uh, And the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. So when it comes to contradictory things, we need to obey God rather than man. And if they straightly charge us not to teach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that basically contradicts the commandment we have to preach the word Um, then we obey God rather than men. But notice this isn't some issue of personal preference or personal liberty or personal freedom. It's the fact that they were told not to preach and the Lord had commanded them to preach. So that's the issue of the day. Um, That's where basically these things differ. Now, in the context of of protest, you can't really um, go any further without talking about Um, the BLM movement, which really has become one of the biggest things um, this world has seen, or certainly North America, um, in the last little while. Um, This is the definition of Black Lives Matter from Wikipedia. Black Lives Matter is a decentralized political and social movement advocating for nonviolent civil disobedience in protest against incidents of police brutality and all racially motivated violence against black people. Now, we might agree with the sentiment there of, you know, racially motivated violence is wrong. Um, police brutality is wrong. Um, But when you look at the rest of it, it's a political and a social movement that advocates civil disobedience in protest. How can we, based on the scriptures that we've just read, as Bible believers, participate in this kind of a movement when we've just been told to be subject to the higher powers? And yet here, this group is advocating civil disobedience, not subjection. Now, When you take that a little bit further and we say, okay, well, um, looking at that, you know, where does this whole group come from? What we find, of course, is that it was founded um, by uh, three women. We have, um, this is what ABC News tells us, uh, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors and Opal Tomitai, two of whom identify as queer. Um, interesting uh, background Um, and this is again uh, ABC News uh, wrote a whole article pointing this out and so when you look at this and and a lot of people are pressured to joining into this movement and feel that they must uh, show solidarity with it um, but you go to their website and you take a look at well what are their beliefs Um, and we say well or they say sorry and this is right from their own official website we are guided by the fact that all black lives matter regardless of actual or perceived and notice here sexual identity gender identity or gender expression Um, we make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead we are self-reflexive and do work required to dismantle uh, cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folks well cisgender means the um 
gender that you were born with. So, in other words, if your plumbing is such that you're a man, um, they say that they, they want to dismantle that idea and uh, work with basically anybody who wants to identify as something else. So take the way God has designed it and the way he has created people and the way that they have been born and formed and these people want to tell you that you can be something else. And that's one of the main things, um, headlines in what they identify. This isn't like on page 37 in the fine print. This is front and center headline what they believe. Now, it goes on from there. Uh, they say that basically we want to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure uh, requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care one for another. So they want to do away with the family structure that God put in place. One man, one woman with children. So get rid of God-designed families. They want to foster a queer affirming network and they want to gather uh, or when they gather, they do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking or rather the belief that all the world are heterosexual. So in other words, that we are not by birth men and women and that's the way we are formed, but rather um, they feel that we should be whatever we want to be and uh, they're going to work. And this is what they say, we gather with the intention of our freeing, freeing ourselves from the way that God has set things up, is basically what they are saying here. So regardless of the issue, regardless of the cause and, and the concern that we may have for you know, the people that have gone through these things, how can we, as Bible-believing Christians, possibly join with a group like this on any level when this is the headline of what they have set out to do. Like I say, this is not, you know, page 37. This is the front page, our beliefs, top of the list. Um, and these people that have created this group, two out of the three are gay. So how does that align with what the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 7, wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. We are implored by our God to be separate and come out from them, and we certainly cannot join in with this kind of a situation. The problem is, it's one of the biggest movements the U.S. has ever seen. 15 to 26 million people participated in the different uh, movements that they've had, whether they were part of it as members or not. They participated in the, in the protests, making Black Lives Matter one of the largest movements in the U.S. history. And there's lots of social pressure to join it. Black Lives Matter, white silence is equivalent to white violence. Now, when we think about that, I, I want you to come back to Peter. I told you to keep your finger in Romans, but we're going to go back to Peter first. Um, going back to first of Peter chapter four. And this is the problem is because the world would like us to run with it. So in first Peter chapter four, verse one, we read here for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of man, but to the will of God. So here's the issue, is that if we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to arm ourselves with the same thinking that he had. So the way he thought has to be the way we think. No longer to live the rest of our lives to the lusts of men in the flesh, but rather to the will of our God. Now, he goes on to say that, you know, in the time past, it may have sufficed us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles and describes different things that they did. And he says, now, the problem is that they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Now, that's a bit of a play on words. This isn't the word riot, as in the riots that sort of happened. This just means that riotous living. Um, but the point is that the world thinks it's strange that we will not run with them to the same things that they do, and they will speak evil of us. And so, consequently, in the world, what we find is that 
politicians are pulled into this debate. You can see Bernie Sanders on the right-hand side there, uh, presidential candidate, Democrat, who basically is identified with this group, and he, and he needs to. Um, and somebody rather satirically put up a note of Joe Biden saying that, you know, it wasn't black lives matter, it was black votes matter. Um, but the point is basically that they will identify themselves with this um, because they're pressured into it. And it's interesting that um, our young people especially are getting this pressure. You've messed with the wrong generation. Because very much um, people see that some of the problems that are going on are certainly wrong. There are certainly some, some injustices that have taken place. Um, and so people are rushing to join in this great protest, not looking at what the bigger movement is all about. Now, as you continue to investigate this, what we find is that the movement kind of stands on that brink of anarchy. If you're going to break up the family, if you're going to break down all rules, um, it's going to bring in anarchy. So the notice here is justice or violence, you decide. So it's pretty much a threatening of violence if the world doesn't uh, go along with the ideas. And of course, um, that's exactly what has happened. The world has descended into violence, and you can see all the liquor cans around at the bottom there and the sign painted on the dumpster, Kill Cops. And uh, we've seen some of that sort of disaster um, that has happened in places like Baltimore and Chicago and, and different places. It's been rather frightening, and it's been rather upsetting um, what has taken place. And, um, and there's a great debate, even amongst the African-American community. A lot of them have come out against this, um, the rioting and this kind of thing, saying this is not what this is supposed to be all about. Um, and, uh, but the problem is, is that it's an anarchist view that basically leads to this kind of thing. Now, I just want to ask a question when we kind of look at this kind of thing. Did Jesus' life matter? We talk about Black Lives Matter, um, but did Jesus' life matter? When we say, would Jesus advocate his followers joining in protest? Well, here's his answer to Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 36, when he was questioned about um, these types of things. And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And you see what the Lord is drawing on there is that he was not part of this world the way that other nations basically are. His kingdom was in the future. He was looking for a future time. And he says, if it was of this world, then my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But he said, that's not what I'm about. And then if they wouldn't fight for that cause because his kingdom was not of this world, why would we fight for other causes that are completely at odds with the Lord and with his word? Now, what about then our relation to the police? Because this kind of these things have all kind of come together. The relationship to the police has been something that has been harbored by this Black Lives Matter group. Uh, and this this hashtag defund the police. Right. So that's the idea is to defund the police. Well, this is where we want to go back to that section we read in Romans. So if you've still got your finger in Romans chapter 13, that's great. I don't. Um, so we're going to head back to Romans chapter 13 and read what he says here. So verse one, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now notice this next little phrase. Whosoever therefore resists the power, the higher power that's been ordained of God, resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive greater or damnation to themselves. Um, so here's the issue. If we are resisting the police and the government and the powers that he's put in place. We're actually resisting God himself and we will receive condemnation because he goes on to say, look, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Will thou then not be afraid of the power, the power that God's put in place? Do that which is good and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he bears not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. 
Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. And yes, there will be bad police officers, just like there was a bad dentist in um, Nova Scotia, I think it was, who went around and murdered 20-some people. Um, There will be bad teachers. There will be bad doctors. There will be all kinds of bad people because man in, in his nature is basically bad. But the people that God has put in authority, even though there will be some that are bad amongst them, we are to be subject because he's told us here that they bear not the sword in vain. Now, you know, when it comes to all these cases, and we're not going to talk about any of them in specific, the question is, can we be the jury in these cases? Because really, when we're asked to join in protests, and there's this whole uh, list of names of people who have uh, perhaps received injustice, some of them, others, it's found out later on that they were up on charges. Um, did they deserve the reward that they got? Um, probably not. Um, certainly, a lot of it is over the top, but we're not there. Um, we don't know all the facts. The media doesn't know all the facts. Um, and uh, we're being asked to be jury and decide the right or the wrong of these cases. And Christadelphians actually will not become jury members because I've sat in on many court cases. I used to be a court sketcher. You're asked to decide the motive of somebody. Why did they do this or why did they do that? Well, we cannot know the thoughts and the intents of the hearts. God knows them, but we don't know them. I just want you to notice this interesting little point that the Apostle Paul makes in a passage where he's talking about believers going to the courts. He says, what have I to do to judge them also that are without? So outside of the the ecclesia, the congregation, he says, what am I going to do to judge them? He says, them that are without, God judges. And that's really our position on this, is that that whole scenario outside of of the, the believers, God will be the judge of that, and he does bring about judgment. Um, It's in his time and in his way, but he will bring about judgment. We cannot do that. And the Apostle Paul refused to join in. He says, them that are without God judges. Now, we just want to spend the last few minutes to talk about the spirit behind these protests. Now, it's not um, conspiracy theory. This is coming right from the book of Revelation. So I'd like you to come to Revelation chapter 16, because we're told here about the time of the end and certain forces that are going to be at play. And in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 13, we're in the time period uh, of the end. It's a whole other class to look at. But um, just so you can see, verse 15, the Lord says, behold, I come as a thief. Right. So it's right before his coming. And he tells us there, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And again, it's an entirely separate class. The dragon equates with Russia. The beast equates equates with Europe. And the false prophet equates with the papacy, the Vatican. Uh, And that's established throughout uh, the prophetic word. Other classes we will have on those subjects. But he says there are unclean spirits like frogs. And these are the spirits of devils that come out of their mouths. They work miracles and they go forth to the kings of the earth and the whole world. And the end result is that they will gather them to the, to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So it's going to bring all the world into a contest with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to come and he's going to win that contest. Well, this idea of spirits, unclean spirits, they come out of the mouth, which gives you kind of an idea. This is something that comes from the mouth. And the word spirit, um, if we were to look it up in Strong's Concordance, is the word pneuma, which simply means a movement of air, a gentle blast. And he goes on to say it's the idea of the rational spirit or the power by which the human being feels, thinks and decides. And we're told in the scriptures in, in 1 John chapter 1 or chapter 4 verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because he says many false prophets have gone out into the world. So there's ideas, rational thought, these spirits, he says, and, and we've got to try them and to figure out whether these ideas are of God, because there's lots of false teachers or false prophets that have gone out into the world. 
And he goes on to say in Revelation, these are the spirits of devils. Well, the word devils is the word demon, which basically means a, a god or a goddess, an inferior deity, whether it's good or bad, or just simply an evil spirit. So it's the idea of something that's evil. It's not necessarily good. And, and James tells us about this kind of thing. They're spirits of devils. And he says in James chapter 3, and he's talking about wisdom of the world. He says the wisdom, verse 15, that descends um, not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish, or demoniacal. For where every or envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. So a demon is the same thing as worldly thinking. It is wisdom that's not from above, but it's earthly, it's worldly, it's sensual, it's, it's according to the flesh, and it brings about conf confusion, says James. Well, what is the word confusion? Well, the word here in the Greek um, is an, or sorry, a katastia. Um, and it, the idea is a tumult, an instability, a disorder, or a disturbance. That's what a confusion is. If we put these things together, we have here basically the idea that the demonic frog spirits um, are teachings or doctrines which are made up of earthly wisdom or madness, which causes instability, tumult, and disorder. They are not of God, but come from the heart of man. Remember, the Lord said, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, and so on and so forth. And they came, one of the places was from the false prophet, which the scriptures identify with the Roman Catholic Church and its leader, the, the, the papacy. So it was no surprise, then we see Catholic priests joining in with this Black Lives Matter group. So this is a photograph from June of this year of the Cardinal or the Catholic Diocese of El Paso and the Bishop of El Paso um, who took a knee for Black Lives Matter holding the sign and was subsequently phoned by Pope Francis um, and congratulated on the stand that he took. Now, you know, is this all a conspiracy theory? Well, it just happens to be that this week, uh, in fact, yesterday, a letter was sent, or a, a, uh, an article was published about an interview between an archbishop and a journalist. Now, this is the archbishop. Uh, Vagano is his name. And he used to be the archbishop or the papal nuncio, the, the, like the, the foreign minister of the Vatican to um, America during the time of Obama. Now, he says, this is what he said in this interview, like yesterday. I wish to emphasize is the close connection between the rebellion of the ultra-progressive conservatives with the Jesuits in their lead and the education of generations of Catholics who were formed according to the modernist ideology flowing into the council, and he's talking about the Vatican Council too, um, which served as the premise not only for the 1968 revolution, so remember the, the great hippie revolution of 1968 where there was a lot of turmoil in the political sphere, but also for the doctrinal and moral revolution in the ecclesial sphere. Without Vatican II, we would not have had the student revolution that radically changed the life of the Western world, or in the Western world, the vision of the family, the role of women, and the very concept of authority. Now, he is a dissenter from what is going on uh, with the current pope. The current pope, of course, is a Jesuit and um, was involved in some of these um, you know, social movements back in the 1960s. Now, he goes on to say all the premises that were laid down in a nutshell in Vatican Council II and the student revolution are now consistently proposed by Vatican leaders on the ecclesial front and by government leaders on the global political front. There, it, therefore, it should come to, as no surprise if the priorities of, and this is Pope Francis he's talking about, political program coincide with Joe Biden's priorities. Uh, migration, environmentalism, um, there's something called Methusium 
uh, ecological or ecologism, and, and what it's referring to is the idea of of the fact that population is exploding higher than the Earth can su- can sustain it. Uh, gender ideology, the dissolution of the family, and globalism are common to the deep state and deep church agenda. So this is a Catholic, uh, a bishop, who used to be the the archbishop who was the one who was responsible for bringing um, Pope Benedict um, to to America. Um, And uh, he basically says that, you know, what's going on, this revolution that's been going on since the 60s, and this ultra left-wing sort of side of things, has been the work of the Jesuits, and people like Joe Biden, of course, who is a Catholic, um, as is uh, others like uh, Nancy Pelosi, and um, and Kerry was also a Catholic. Um, all of them have been working towards the same thing. They've been they've been harnessing it and, and whipping up this furor that has been taking place. So, as Christians, as Bible believers, we really need to think about what are we going to throw our hat in with. Are we going to align it with this movement like Black Lives Matter, um, like basically this revolutionary idea, this anarchist idea of uh, bring down government, bring down law, bring down order, bring down all the institutions that God has put in place, such as family, um, and in its place we just have everybody doing what's right in their own eyes? Or are we going to come out and be separate and look forward to the time when the future righteous government is going to be uh, set up upon the earth. And so that's really what we are looking forward to. So when we look at the world and the turmoil, our message is one of this is going to change. We're not going to be bringing about that change right now, but the Lord who is at the door is going to bring about this change. So we read in Isaiah 11, um, that there shall come out of, uh, forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, this is a reference to Jesse, the father of David, and it was David's um, son that was going to come in the future generations, which, of course, would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And this prophet tells us that he's going to be different. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And what does that mean? Well, it means that he's not going to judge after the sight of his ears, neither reprove after the hearing of his, uh, sorry, sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he's going to judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he's going to slay the wicked. Righteousness will be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Now this is biblical righteousness and biblical justice. Not man's righteousness and man's justice, but God's righteousness and God's justice. And what he's going to do with that is judge the poor, plead their cause, reprove with equity the meek of the earth. And so he's going to turn around the evils of this world, and that is going to take place right soon. And so that's what we, as Bible believers, look forward to. That's what we should be about promoting. That's what we should be about talking about, that the Lord is coming at any moment. And we should not be involved with groups that absolutely disregard his word and that would turn away from God's ways um, to their own ways and their own thoughts, and basically would be involved in, in the things that God would have nothing to do with. And so we read in Micah chapter 4, that in the last days, verse 1, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above all the hills, and the people or people shall flow unto it. Many nations shall say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this is the kingdom age, where the Lord Jesus Christ has come, just like he promised in Acts chapter 11, or the angels did, that he would so come in like manner. He will establish himself on the earth with a group of believers that have been called to him, been separated out of the nations over a time period, into the nation which God has separated to himself, the nation of Israel. 
and all the other nations that have been divided by their tongues and by their into their countries are going to be invited to come up to Jerusalem where the law is going to go forth from Zion and God's going to teach people his ways and his paths and and the result is going to be verse 3 he shall judge amongst many people rebuke strong nations afar off and they are going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore so the inequities of one nationality versus another nationality, one color versus another color, that, that war that's been going on since the beginning of time is going to be put to rest. And all nations will be united in God's city. Like not under Babel, which is man doing his thing and exalting himself, but where God is exalted. And the result of that is going to be peace. They're going to beat their swords into plowshares. So all of the violence that we see right now is going to be done away with. And verse 4, they will sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and none shall make them afraid. So the the fear of, of what the age we live in right now will be done away with. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all people will walk, everyone, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And that's really the challenge to us right now, is to walk in the name of our God. The world may walk in the name of its gods, and it's got its champions and causes and whatever else, but for us it's to walk in the name of our God and to put our hearts and our minds into the things that he would have us to do and be his people, come out from this world, be separate, don't involve ourselves in these unholy things, but rather get on with the mission that the disciples were given to preach the word and to hold forth the word of life, which will give hope to hopeless people. And they'll look past this present to the future age that is coming, and they will have a great satisfaction in the fact that they are invited to be part of the kingdom of God, and all the troubles of this life will be done away with. And we pray and hope that that day will be soon.